I want to welcome you to Alliance Christian Fellowship. Uh, glad you're here. Furthermore, I'm glad you found us here this morning. As, as most of you may already know, this is not our normal meeting place. Uh, we are normally in the hub in Alumni Hall. For those of you who uh, may not be familiar, um, we're, we normally are in the hub 1030 every Sunday morning. And uh, for various reasons, we had to relocate uh, to Thomas Building just for this week. Uh, but next week, we'll be back in the hub. And so uh, don't come back to Thomas. We, we haven't, you know, permanently relocated. We'll be back in the hub next weekend. So um, we'd love for you to join us next week. Uh, <clears throat> we have a lot of friends who are on fall retreats and things of that nature. And so friends, those of you who are catching this video after this week, we missed you. And uh, hopefully this will be a, your, your retreat weekend will be a blessing to you. For those of you who are here, glad you're here. Um, my name is Dan Min, and I serve as the pastor here at ACF, and uh, if you're new, first of all, welcome. We're glad you're here. But over the last uh, several weeks, in fact, the better part of this semester, we've been in a series called The Kingdom Way, The Kingdom Way. By the way, I love these screens. I, if we can relocate these to the hub and just snatch them and bring them to the, that would be awesome. These are fantastic. Um, we've been in the series called The Kingdom Way, and um, this series is a series based on Jesus's most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, and uh, where, as he's preaching this message, if you're familiar with the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus seemed to have really one goal in mind in preaching this message, and that was to teach us and show us this kingdom way, to show us how to live in this kingdom way. And so if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 5 with me. Matthew chapter 5, take out whatever smart device you might have and flip over to Matthew 5, and I'd like to continue to look into what Jesus has to say. But more importantly, I'm hoping that Jesus has a word for us today. I'm hoping that Jesus has a specific word for today. And so if you need a Bible, go ahead and raise your hand. We'll have some folks coming around and they can get a Bible into your hands. Matthew chapter 5 is where we're going to be looking. Pick me up at verse 17 and we're going to go through to verse 20. And we'll also put it up here on the screen for you to look along with us. Now remember, this is Jesus talking and he is in the middle of preaching this sermon on the mount. And here's what he says, starting from verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Verse 19, he goes on. And he says, therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, friends, I, I have to be honest with you. When I first sat down to work on this message, and after I got done reading this passage, I had no idea where I wanted to go with this message, okay? I, I sat down and I said, to, I said, Lord, I'm not sure I'm seeing a sermon. In the, can, can, can I just skip over this part of the Sermon on the Mount? Like, I don't, I don't really feel like there's a sermon to be preached here. And I don't know if you've ever read through Scripture and you're like, I don't know what this is saying. I'm reading words, but I'm not sure what it's saying here. And maybe you're thinking the same, because truth, truth be known, at this point, Jesus, if you've been following with us in the Sermon on the Mount, or if you're familiar with the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus seems to take a hard turn here. 
I mean, he seems to take clearly changes direction in his discourse, and this might seem like a bit of an odd detour. You know, the Sermon on the Mount had a strong start. If you're, again, if you're familiar, Jesus starts off the sermon with the Beatitudes, right? It's all these blessed statements. Blessed are so-and-so, blessed are so-and-so, and all those blessed statements are attached with these incredible promises. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor, the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And we're like, yeah. Those sound awesome. I'm all about that. The Beatitudes are great. And then, and then Jesus moves into this new section of being the salt of the earth and the light of the world. And we spent some time looking at that last week. And that was all really good too. Just really encouraging stuff and also really practical. You know, I think that's why we, you know, we, we want to read scripture and pull out practical applications, practical things. And salt and light has that element. It's practical and helpful. But then Jesus goes into this Weird section of the sermon at this point. In verse 17 to 20, it's kind of like, it's sort of like he, he goes off on a tangent. It's like, I, Jesus, I was tracking with you with the Beatitudes. I was tracking with you with the whole salt, salt and light piece of it. But, but Jesus, what are you talking about here? What, is, what are you getting at here? I mean, what is the significance of what Jesus is saying here? Well, to understand what Jesus is saying, but furthermore, to, to really appreciate, because that's what I want you to do. By the, time, by the end of our time, I don't want you to just understand what Jesus is saying here. I want you to really appreciate what Jesus is saying. But in order to do that, you've got to listen. We've got to listen this morning with first century ears. You've got to interpret these words in light of the context in which he was saying these words. Now, for, for those of us who are living in the 21st century, some of these words that Jesus uses here in this passage don't mean a lot to us. They just don't carry a ton of meaning. Words like law, the prophets, the fulfillment and the abolishment, you know, words like commandments. And, and I think that's why some of us might look at this passage and say, I don't get it. I don't get what Jesus is saying. But I want to tackle this passage in a certain way that will helpfully, hopefully get us to uh, begin to capture the essence of what Jesus is trying to communicate here. And the way I want to do that is I want to play a video clip for you here before we go on. And this is a video that was produced by an organization called The Bible Project. Some of you may have heard me reference this organization before, and it's a great resource for those of you who are wanting to do some Bible study, uh, some more in-depth uh, exploration of the Bible. Uh, this, this organization puts together these wonderful informational tutorials that are also really well-made and really well-produced. They're animated videos. And so I want to play one of those videos for you here this morning. And as you're, as you're watching this video, I want you to begin to think about what Jesus said here in this passage. Filter this video through this lens where Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And so go ahead, let's, let's uh, kill the lights and uh, roll this video here this morning. The Bible. It's one of the most influential books in human history. It explores the big questions of why we exist. It's inspired many people to do amazing things. And confused many others. And you've probably got one sitting around somewhere. So, what is the Bible actually? Well, the Bible is a small library of books that all emerged out of the history of the people of ancient Israel. And in one sense, they were just like any other ancient civilization. But among them were a long line of individuals called prophets. And they viewed Israel's story as anything but ordinary. They saw it as a central part of what God was doing for all humanity. And 
These prophets were literary geniuses. Really? Yeah, they expertly crafted the Hebrew language to write epic narratives, very sophisticated poetry. They were masters of metaphor and storytelling, and they leveraged all of this to explore life's most complicated questions about death and life and the human struggle. So there's a lot of different authors writing this book. Yeah, and these texts were produced over a thousand year period, starting with Israel's origins in Egypt, then leading up to their kingdom with their first temple. But eventually they were conquered by the Babylonians who took them away into exile. Then at a crucial moment in their history, many Israelites returned to their land. They built a second temple, they reformed their identity, and this is when the Jewish scriptures begin to be formed into the shape that we have them today. Okay, the Jewish Bible, what's in it? Well, in Hebrew, it's called by an acronym, Tanakh. The T stands for Torah, sometimes called the law. That's Israel's five book foundation story. The N stands for Nevi'im, the Hebrew word for prophets. And this section consists of the historical books that tell Israel's story from the prophet's point of view. Then you get the poetic books of the prophets themselves. The K stands for Ketavim, the Hebrew word for writings. This is a diverse collection of poetic books, wisdom books, and more narrative. And the Jewish people believe that through all of these literary works, God speaks to his people. Now, there were other Jewish writings being produced during this second temple period as well. Yeah, a really diverse group of texts. And these two were highly valued in Jewish communities. And there was debate from ancient times about whether or not some of these should be considered part of their scriptures. So this is a lot of different writings over a long period of time. Why did they put them all together like this? Well, altogether, these texts tell an epic story about how God is working through these people to bring order and beauty out of the chaos of our world. And it all builds up to a hope for a new leader who would come and renew all creation. And then the Tanakh concludes, and this leader never comes. So it's an expertly crafted work, but it's missing an ending? That's exactly right. Now, a few centuries later, a Jewish prophet comes onto the scene named Jesus of Nazareth. He claimed he was carrying the Tanakh story forward. Yeah, so Jesus did a bunch of cool stuff was killed, but his followers claimed he was alive from the dead. Yeah, they said that Jesus was that long-awaited leader who would restore the world. And so his earliest followers, called apostles, they composed new literary works about the story of Jesus. They called these good news or the gospel. They formed an account called Acts about the spread of the Jesus movement outside of Israel. And then they circulated letters to different Jesus communities all around the ancient world. And they saw these writings as part of the scripture. Yeah, the apostles wrote all of this as the fulfillment of that epic story found in the Tanakh. And they were continuing the literary genius of the Jewish tradition. They also believed that God was speaking to his people through these texts alongside the scriptures of Israel. So th We're going to stop it there for now, and uh, the video continues on, and you can watch that at your own convenience. But um, hopefully that gives us a little bit of context here this morning. And if, if you're new to Christian faith, if you're new to the Bible, that's a little bit of a, just kind of a, a three-minute clip of how the Bible has come to, to its form. And that's going to be important for our conversation here today as we'll continue to unfold this. And so as we look at this text, I want us to set the stage before we try to, again, rush to some principles and practical applications, which we will get to later in this message. But I want us to set the stage here. The first century audience that Jesus was preaching to on this mountaintop called the Sermon on the Mount, this first century audience that Jesus was speaking to would have been most likely a mix of people. You know, they were kind of sitting along the mountainside and listening to the words of Jesus, but this audience would have been mostly Jewish in nature. 
mostly Jewish in nature. Now, within that mix, you probably had some religious leaders, uh, people like uh, the scribes and the Pharisees amongst the crowd. And again, if you're, if you're new to Bible, the Pharisees and these religious leaders, the scribes, the Sadducees, and the Zealots, and all these groups of people were people, specifically the Pharisees in particular, were people who study the law and the prophets day in and day out. If the Pharisees had one job, it was to study the scriptures and to study the Old Testament text, the law and the prophets, basically day and night. That was their life. They lived and ate and breathed the Old Testament scriptures. Now, moving away from the Pharisees just a little bit, if we went to the rest of the Jewish community, you know, aside from the religious leaders of that time, the average, the average Joe of that Jewish community, Scripture wasn't something that was that intensely ingested and, and studied for the, the, for the average person. In fact, for the average person, they didn't... They, they didn't know how to read. They, weren't, they, weren't, uh, they didn't have text to read from. These were stories, the laws and the prophets were stories that were handed down from generation to generation. But, but here's the thing that you need to know about the, 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 the place of the law, the place of the Old Testament scripture for the rest of the Jewish community. It was something that marked the people of God as distinct. In other words, the law in the Old Testament was originally given the whole purpose of the law being given in the Old Testament was so that those who obeyed the law would be recognized and, and identified as the people of God, as God's holy people. This law was basically the only thing that signified God's people as God's people. That was the primary purpose of the law. Some people ask, why did God give the Old Testament people, the ancient Israelites, the law? Is it because God was kind of this dictatorial lawgiver that he was kind of this like, everyone needs to follow my rules and play by, you know, play by my rules and my game. And he was towing the line and make, making sure people were in perfect marching order. No, that's not why God gave the law to Moses and the Israelites. The reason was there needed to be a standard that delineated the people of God from the rest of the world. And the law was to be that standard. The law was to be the distinct standard for delineating the people of God versus the rest of the world. And so for this Jewish community who was listening to the words of Jesus, the law meant a lot to them. The law wasn't just something like, you know, in our Bibles, we got the Old Testament and the New Testament. We say, oh, that's just part of our Bible. The law was everything to these people. It was intimately tied to their identity. After all, it was the thing that identified them and made them distinct as God's holy people. They grew up in homes where teachings of this law was foundational to their upbringing. So bedtime stories were, you know, all right, Jimmy, time to open up to Leviticus. Like, time to go through the laws. Like, you know, it's like, Mom, Dad, I'm tired of, like, the blood off and splatting her on the altar and like this grain offering. How about the hungry caterpillar? The very, can, we, can we go back to the, the regular normal bedtime stories? But that was part of their upbringing. Part of the things that were passed on from generation to generation was the stories of the laws and the prophets. In fact, in many ways, you might say that the law was what bound and held this community of people together. You take the law, you strip the law away from them, this community would disintegrate. So you, are you catching the gravity of the law, the Old Testament, the law and the prophets for this particular first century people? Now, with that in mind, with that in mind, now I, I can probably talk extensively more about the significance of the law for this community of people, but we'll just leave it there for now. I think we get the point. With that in mind, you may have noticed that up until this point, 
Jesus makes no real mention of the Old Testament in his sermon. Up until this point, he makes no reference at all to anything about the law or the prophets or anything that pertains to the Old Testament. The Beatitudes, they stand alone. You know, the whole blessed are so-and-so, blessed are so-and-so, there's no direct correlation to the Old Testament. The whole salt and light piece, there are components that you can draw back to the Old Testament, but there's nothing explicitly tying the whole salt and uh, the salt of the earth, the light of the world piece to the Old Testament. Jesus doesn't reference the Old Testament at all until verse 21. Now, we're not, gonna, we're not there yet. We only read up to verse 20 today. We're going to look at verse 21 and proceeding next week. But it's not until verse 21 that Jesus references the Old Testament. But it's not just in verse 21 that he references the Old Testament. He refers back to it again in verse 27, then again verse 31, then again in verse 33, verse 38, verse 43. I mean, over and over and over again, Jesus refers back to the set of teachings This set of stories called the law and the prophets, which was handed down from generation to generation, which has served as a sole indicator of God's people for all those generations and has also served as the chief binding agent that has held this community of people together for all those generations. Now, Jesus comes onto the scene and he's about to disrupt all of that. He's about to disrupt all of that and rock people's foundations because in the coming weeks, we're going to hear Jesus utter these words. You have heard that it was said, but I say to you. You have heard that it was said, but I say to you. You see, you would have thought people, upon hearing this, people would have perked up when Jesus started talking about the Old Testament scripture. First century Jewish people would have listened to this. You have heard that it was said, and then as he quotes Old Testament scripture, people would have been been like, finally, some familiar content. Like, I can can track with this. Like, Jesus, enough with the salt and light business. Let's go back to what our forefathers talked about. Let's go back to what Moses talked about. Let's go back to the Old Testament scripture. But Jesus flips the script. You have heard that it was said, but I say to you. Now, those five little words would foundationally and fundamentally change the trajectory of all of history, particularly for this community of people. In the ears of the first century Jewish person, your immediate reaction to what Jesus says, but I say, you have heard it said, but I say to you, your reaction in the first century would have been like, whoa, 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 Jesus, what do you mean, but I say to you? There should be no, you have heard it said, there should be no but after that. It should be period. Are you, trying, are you trying to mess with centuries worth of traditions that have signified us as the people of God? Are you trying to rewrite the law of Moses? I mean, are you trying to rewrite the narrative? Are you, re- trying, to, are you trying to replace it? Worse yet, are you trying to eliminate? Did, Jesus, did you come to abolish the law? That's how the first century Jewish listeners would have heard this. Jesus' teachings were so radical that it would have struck his listeners as a complete abolishment of everything that they built their life upon, to which Jesus would have said, no, people, you've got it wrong. You've got it all wrong. I didn't come to abolish the law. Get this. I am the fulfillment of the law. Now, if you thought that whole, like, abolishing the law piece would have been a real brain trip for these people, mind trip, like, 
this idea of Jesus being the fulfillment of the law would have been a total earth-shattering reality for these people. Because you see the Old Testament referred to this Messiah. They grew up. Remember, remember those bedtime stories that I referred to? I mean, they weren't really bedtime stories, but go with me, right? There were these bedtime stories that in the Old Testament scripture, there were references to this Messiah that was coming. You saw it in the video. There was this Messiah, the anointed one that would come and rescue the people of God. And we hear passages like Isaiah 9, where during the Christmas season, which by the way, I don't know if you know this, Christmas is less than 80 days away. Crazy, crazy. Total side note, it has nothing to do with the message, just thought you might want to know that. Isaiah chapter 9, Isaiah chapter 9, we hear this during the Christmas season, and we'll put it up here on the screen so that you can follow along. It says this, for unto us a child is born, right? We know this passage. To us a son is given, And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. We see this plastered on Christmas cards everywhere, and this this passage comes out of Isaiah 9. For unto us a child is born, he shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. To which Jesus says, surprise, That's, that's me, guys. You know, the whole wonderful counselor, you know, mighty God, everlasting prince of peace, the son who is to be given to the world, the government shall be upon his shoulder. Ah, me, that's me. Now, this is one of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of prophecies and references to Jesus in the Old Testament. In fact, the entire, you know, a lot of people say, what's the Old Testament about? It just seems like a bunch of like old stories. It's not just a bunch of old stories. What the Old Testament is, it is a pointing. Remember last week we talked about as Christians, we are to be a signpost, right? You guys remember that if you were here last week? We said as salt and light of the world. Our job as Christians is simply to be a signpost that points people to Jesus. The Old Testament is one big giant signpost that points to the person of Jesus. And like we saw in the video earlier, Jesus is the one who carries out the spirit of the law and the message of the prophets in its entirety. And that's what we have in the New Testament. That's what we see playing out in the New Testament. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. Now he goes so far as to say, for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Now, now, stick with me here, because I, I know that this feels a lot more like a seminary class than, than, than Sunday church, but, but just go with me, okay? This, this is all going somewhere. What is Jesus getting at here when he says, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a doubt will pass from the law until all is accomplished? Well, he's doing two things. Number one, he's emphasizing the importance of the law. He is emphasizing the significance of the law. For a, a people and an audience who thought he was minimizing the law, Jesus was saying, no, 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 people, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law. He is further stressing the point that he didn't come to abolish the law. Rather, he says the law will endure forever until heaven and earth pass away. Number two, the second thing he's trying to do is when he says the law won't pass until all is accomplished, a lot of scholars get hung up on this, and, and, and as I was doing some research, you had a lot of kind of going back and forth. What does Jesus mean when he says, until all is accomplished? What is that all? Now, just so you know, the law contained a series of 248 commandments. You ought to know, the law wasn't just the Ten Commandments. A lot of people perceive the law of Moses to be the Ten Commandments. 
On top of those 10 commandments, there were a series of 248 commandments. And then on top of that, there were 365 prohibitions, things you cannot do, one for every day. I mean, it sounds like prison for us, right? Like, what do you mean prohibit 365 prohibitions? That's a lot of rules to uphold. And so is Jesus saying that until heaven and earth pass away, we need to keep up with all of these rules? All 248 commandments and all 365 prohibitions till the end of time? Absolutely not. That is not what Jesus is saying. Remember what Jesus said right before this. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. Now, this is key. I mean, if you walk away with any piece of information from this passage, it needs to be the central piece that Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. And we're going to see why that's important in just a minute. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. Because he's the fulfillment of the law, that makes Jesus the lens by which we interpret the law through. And so to put it differently, to follow the authoritative teachings of Jesus in the New Testament is to be faithful in accomplishing the whole meaning of the Old Testament law. Let me say that again. To follow the authoritative teachings of Jesus in the New Testament is to be faithful in accomplishing until all is accomplished. All is accomplished. What is Jesus talking about? It is to be faithful in accomplishing the whole meaning of the Old Testament law. To put it differently, when we obey the teachings of Jesus, it's as if we are upholding every little iota and every little dot of the whole of Scripture. Jesus didn't come to abolish the law. Heck, Jesus was there when God gave Moses the law. When God gave Moses the law, Jesus was right there. You know, you, you think he was sleeping in the guest room like when God was downloading the law in Mount Sinai to Moses? Jesus wasn't sleeping on the job. Jesus was there when God gave Moses the law. Jesus was there when God spoke to the prophets. You want to know why? Because Jesus is God. He is part of the triune God, part of the, 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 the Godhead. And so Jesus was there. And so why would Jesus come to abolish his own work? It makes no sense. Jesus didn't come to abolish the law. He came to be the fulfillment of the law, the law that pointed to Jesus, the prophets that pointed to Jesus. And because Jesus is the fulfillment of the law, here's the first principle for the day. And it only took us half the message to get here. <laughs> because Jesus is the fulfillment of the law, what he says matters. What he says matters. In fact, everything he says matters. Matters. The words of Jesus carries a new kind of weight. The Sermon on the Mount should strike us differently than any other sermon ever preached. And that's why I said, when we obey the teachings of the words of Jesus, it's as if we are upholding every little iota and every little dot of Scripture. If Jesus is the one who is truly the fulfillment of what all the Old Testament is referencing, and in fact, it's not just the Old Testament, the New Testament is centered around Jesus. You know how I always say at the end of service, the reason why we have communion available every week is because we center around Jesus. The entire Christian faith is centered around Jesus, and not just our Christian faith. Our entire Bible, the full counsel of God's word, points to Jesus. And if that's the case, we've got to come to this conclusion that what Jesus says deeply matters. We can't just fluff off the words of Jesus. What he says matters. And that's why Jesus says in the very next verse, in verse 19, therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. In other words, if you want heaven to think highly of you, 
I do. I want God to think highly of me. I want God to look upon my life and, and, and have a big old smile on his face. I want God and I want heaven to think highly of me. And Jesus says, if you want heaven to think highly of you, here's the second principle. Not only does what Jesus says matters, obedience to Jesus matters. Obedience to Jesus matters. It's not just what he says that matters, but what we do with what he says matters just as much perhaps even more obedience to Jesus matters. Now, again, is Jesus talking about keeping the Old Testament law, obedience to the Old Testament law by crossing every T and dotting every I of the 248 commandments and the 365 prohibitions? No, that's not what he's talking about when, he comes to, when it comes to obedience. He's talking about this new and better way that he is ushering in the kingdom way of obedience. And the question then becomes, what is this kingdom way of obedience to Christ? Well, he tells us in verse 20, as he wraps up this section of scripture, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, to me, this is one of the most peculiar lines in the whole Sermon on the Mount. Like Jesus says a lot of crazy things in the Sermon on the Mount. This for me goes uh, uh, pretty much at the, one of the top three, top five craziest things that Jesus says for several different reasons. Number one, anytime you hear Jesus saying something with great emphasis like, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven, those are moments when you want to stop reading your Bible and just camp out there for a little bit and say, What's, what is Jesus saying here? What's underneath what he's saying? What is Jesus trying to get at? He's saying this with great emphasis. You will never enter the kingdom of heaven because it's probably supremely important if he's speaking with great emphasis such as this. Number two, if you're familiar with the New Testament, you may know that Jesus and the religious leaders, i.e. the Pharisees and the scribes, didn't get along terribly well. In fact, that might be a gross understatement. The two parties couldn't stand each other, Jesus and the Pharisees. Every time Jesus tried to lead people in a certain direction and teach them and guide them and lead them, the Pharisees would say, nope, that's the wrong way, people, this way. If Jesus was trying to lead and go left, the Pharisees would say, no, Jesus doesn't know what he's talking about. He's wrong. People, you need to go right. You need to go this way. They were always at odds with each other. And so it's interesting that Jesus upholds these religious leaders as sort of a standard to reach. I mean, we would say, wait, wait a second, Jesus, I thought you couldn't stand these guys. Why are you esteeming them so highly? Pretty peculiar. And number three and finally, what Jesus is asking for in this verse would seem impossible and absolutely unreasonable for the listeners of the first century. You got to remember, no one followed the law as well as the Pharisees did. No one, no one abided to the rules as well as the Pharisees and the scribes did. I mean, these were guys who were paid professionals. They were groomed from a very young age to know the law, to study the law, and to follow the law down to every little detail. I mean, these were seen as the best of the best, most righteous people of the land. And Jesus says, you've got to be better than them. You've got to do better than that. You've got to be better than the, the, the righteousness of your life should, should exceed, far exceed. That, that word in the Greek that, that the, the New Testament writer used is abundantly more beyond your, your wildest imaginations should far exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees and the scribes. What? 
Jesus, I don't know if you know how this works, but like there's the best and there's really nothing above that. And so when you're asking us to be better than the best, I'm not even sure what you're talking about. I don't know how to go about doing that. And this is where we've got to look at the heart of what Jesus says behind the words that Jesus says. We've got to dig a little bit deeper. You see, what Jesus was looking for here was the difference between joyful obedience and dutiful obligation. This was a fundamental difference between the the followers of Jesus and these religious leaders. There was a world of a difference between joyful obedience as compared to dutiful obligation. You see, the Pharisees and the scribes focused all of their life's energies on keeping the rules, We've got to keep the rules. We've got to keep the rules. We've got to keep the rules. And you want to know something? They were awesome at keeping the rules. They, they were like a bunch of firstborn children. Like they, just, they, they just wanted to keep the rules. Everything they did, I want to follow, I'm a textbook baby. I'm going to follow the rules, keeping the rules, keeping the rules. And they were really good at it. Again, paid professionals. But Jesus, in his new and better way as the fulfillment of the law, As the one who was calling for obedience to every dot and iota of scripture, he was looking for something more. He was looking for something far more. He was searching for a deeper devotion, a life that was driven not by rule keeping. I mean, how how just awful is a Christian life that is boiled down to keeping rules? Friends, if you think that's what being a Christian means, I've got got good news for you. That's not what it means to to, to keep rules rules and follow rules and be stuck in this box of boundaries and regulations. That is not, Jesus does not call us to dutiful obligation. Somehow that's what the Pharisees believed all throughout the generations, that my life, to follow God and to please God, I must follow these dutiful obligation. But Jesus wasn't looking for dutiful obligation. He was looking for a people who would say yes to Jesus, not because they have to, but because they love Jesus. And if you love Jesus, there will be a natural overflow of a joyful obedience that says yes to Jesus, no matter what the cost, that will say yes to him in spite of your circumstances. There is a joyful obedience that bubbles over. He wasn't looking for dutiful obligation. He was looking for people who would follow him with joyful obedience. And Jesus is looking for those same kinds of people here today. 